Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Hey, it's good to see you uh, this morning. Full confession. Uh, I, like a child, destroyed my vocal cords at the, uh, the game yesterday. But, I mean, how about that thicker kicker and we got a win? But if my voice sounds weird, it's because it's destroyed. Uh, so I've got water up here, uh, and we're going to pray, and we're going to keep going and believe that this is a, a good text for our hearts. Uh, before we kind of jump into it, I, man, I just want to remind you on the front side, uh, this is a section of Scripture that we're in right now that's called Wisdom Literature. It's different uh, than a lot of the rest of the Bible. Uh, and one of the things that we're going to have to be comfortable with, and it's even hard sometimes to figure out how to preach well, is there's going to be nuggets of wisdom that just are dropped on you, and you get to take them away and wrestle with them and see what you want to do with them. But there's a little bit different application in these types of texts and sermons than we're used to, and that's okay because we're believing that God is building a slow work of, of wisdom and trust in him uh, throughout that book. So if it just kind of lands differently on you, it, it's kind of supposed to do that with the wisdom nature of what's happening. So I just want to keep that in front of you, and then we'll jump in for uh, today. So when I was a boy, uh, you could only get certain things like strawberries and blackberries and avocados at certain times of the year in the store when they were what was called in season. Same thing went for like sweet corn and uh, watermelons and, and stuff like that. That means that uh, there was times when, when things were in season and you would get them and you would just kind of feast on them and crush them. In my house growing up, that means that we could very likely have guacamole every day for like a week and a half when it was that time because we just loved that stuff. And it also meant that there'd become a time when those things that you love uh, would vanish from the, the store shelf as the season ended. You kind of knew when things were in season, you enjoyed them. And when they were out of season, you just you didn't have them. They were outside of uh, your, your grasp. And the seasonality, it did something to us. It built in some times of enjoyment and, and some times of lament when you can't get what you want. There's a hopeful expectation when you go into the store and all of a sudden that, that section is opened up and they make new room and that thing that you wanted to see is all of a sudden there again. And, and then you can have it. And then there's a time when it also is going to go away. But here's the interesting part. We knew before, at least I did, maybe I'm older than some of you, I don't, I don't know. We knew that there's a time that you can enjoy things then a time that maybe you couldn't. But, but now that's not really the way that it is. You can go to the grocery store in January when it's been five degrees maybe, kick off the, the snow from your boots and walk in, go over to the produce section and you can get strawberries by the cartload if you so desire. Because of supply chain efficiency, the reality of supply in demand, we now ship produce from, from Mexico and, and California and Guatemala and, and Chile season round. So what, what, what it means is the seasonality of things has been drastically reduced, if not eliminated, and thus it appears that mankind got a victory over like the time and the seasons, like we got them. But, but how did that victory come about? When you, when you step back, it, it probably went like, at least this is how my mind imagines it. A, a man says, hey, you know what? I want some strawberries in December. And a, and a farmer says, yeah, you know what? I want a six-pack, no weeds, and never to walk, wake up at five. But that's not happening, right? So the man says, well, what if I give you 10x? What if I pay 10 to 15 times the amount that I used to to get those things? And the farmer said, let me call Mexico. I think we can work something out, right? And I point that out because we didn't really defeat time. 
we in a certain scenario were able to skirt it in a certain way. And maybe it gave us like a, a false bravado of confidence that we could do things that we really can't. Now, what, what has kind of happened all of a sudden is we've, we've been able to get around the seasons because of advancements in money and technology. We have a lot more means and we have a lot more technology that opens things up. And if you think about it, this kind of dance with, with time and the seasons and trying to, to win against it is really the dance of much of our lives. There's this uh, tug of war where we're constantly pulling against what our wills want and what the time actually allows in the moment. And scriptures are going to tell us, and we see it in this text, hey, there's actually a time for all things. And what the difficulty is, is humanity has tried to counter that. They're going, hey, I don't believe that there's a time for all things. What I believe is all things are available at all times because I'll do what I want. And that's the tension of this text. If you're noticing, we're not talking about just strawberries anymore. We're talking about our wills and what we want and what drives our lives. David Gibson said this, most technology has harnessed us to the lie that we can throw off the creaturely constraints of time and have access to everything always without waiting, without stopping, without needing to, to rest. And we think about history, he goes on to say, electricity blurs the boundaries between uh, when we're supposed to be working in the day and when we're supposed to be sleeping at night. And then our online life has this kind of timeless master that, that pings at us from multiple different screens and we come running like it's our master. Things have changed on us. And Gibson is not advocating that we all go full OG Amish and just, just destroy all electricity, but he is showing us that even electricity has, has played a significant role in this tension between what we want and maybe what's appropriate in the times. And mankind has, has struggled to acknowledge the boundaries of times, the reality of seasons, specifically what he was talking about here was between night and day. We blur those things and it's probably not helpful. Then we look at the rest of our lives, our gyms. 24-hour fitness, crunch fitness, planet fitness, our supermarkets, our gas stations, some of our, our offices and, and other things are now open 24-7. For what reason? Right? Who, who needs milk at 3 a.m. regularly? And, and we'll say, well, they're open 24-7 for our, our convenience, but is it really that convenient and is it really that helpful? And, and maybe it's actually not a matter of convenience, but it, it's, it's a matter of... of, of, bra, or of a bravado that believes it's sovereign and I can do whatever I want whenever I want to do it. We've talked about it before. We can order from Amazon in our city two days most, right? Maybe one day. If you're in Kansas City or something like that, you can literally order something and have it in an hour. You place the order on the computer in your pocket and it is there. No waiting, no thinking, no debating. You don't got to check your bank account, just boop, boop, and it, it's there. You want to go on a flight? All of a sudden, it's been a rough week, and I'm going to Vegas. I'm going to California. I'm going whatever. Three minutes on your phone. No thinking. You don't got to save. You got a credit card. You don't even have to save for it. Just, just do it. Book it. You want it, you do it. You want to buy a stock? Ten seconds. Robinhood app. You realize that, that that was not a thing before. You had to have a guy, and there was a process, and it took time. You want to transfer, transfer $10,000? Boop, boop. Seconds. Done. Right? You got to have the $10,000, but I mean, if you, if you got it, you can do it. The point is, again, because of technology and a level of, of financial prosperity that we get to enjoy, we really think that we can do whatever we want, whenever we want. We're not limited by time, by distance, by purchasing power, because we have credit cards galore. 
Uh, we're not limited by hours of, of operation from doing really whatever we want. And there's ways that, man, this is helpful. I'm not, I'm not wanting to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's, there's ways it's super convenient and super awesome, but there's also ways we have to have some wisdom around it. And we have to wonder, even with all the convenience, is it actually really that helpful? And is the dismissal of times and seasons and rhythms and waiting, is it actually destroying some things inside of our heart that, that, that we should not be trading? Now, the Bible will teach us that wise people respect the rhythms of time. In the day, we have dawn and morning and afternoons and evening and night. And then God has made six days, the Bible says, for working and one day to rest and to worship. This structure's a week. And these weeks repeat and they structure a month and these months repeat and they structure a year. And our years can be broken down into seasons of weather and an amount of light that you get during the day. And these elements, even in the year, are meant to foster a type of rhythm that we obey and walk inside. There's natural catalysts. Hey, there's more sunlight. It's warm. Get out there. Do more. Have fun in certain points. And there's also natural guardrails that stop us from moving and urge us to slow and find peace in our lives. But here's the reality. Many people live rhythm-free lives. There's literally no rhythm to the madness, simply doing whatever they want to do, whatever they want to feel like it. And at any given moment, they'll do anything without any intention to the, to the reality. But should I do this right now? Is this actually the, the right time to, to, to do this? And, and we just think it's normal and good. But the hard part is we have to realize this doing all of these things at the wrong times is actually what is tearing at the fabric of our humanity. What do I mean? Where's the actual problem? Where's the the real harm? We'll we'll quickly look at maybe social media for an example. Social media is is designed to addict you. That's that's all it's for. It wants you to engage as many times as you can. Uh, You may think, no, 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 it's to see pictures and be in touch. That is not what it's for. Investors prove that. It is to addict you. And they have this way to get constant engagement built in all over the place to give you dopamine hits so you come back like, like going to a dealer to get a little bit more and a little bit more. So we end up engaging all the time because they train us to engage all the time. So, so what does this look like with social media in the morning? Pop it open, check something. At the breakfast table, click it. Right? On the way to work, you hit a red light. Maybe some of you don't hit a red light and you're still looking. And then at lunchtime, and then you got 15-minute bathroom break Right, dinner, all, all the time, at night when you're supposed to be sleeping, we're, we're engaging all the time with others, seeing pictures, liking posts, clicking links, writing comments, whether it be Facebook or Instagram or TikTok. I, I don't care what your jam is, but this is kind of what happens here. And when we do this, we feel filled up by the dopamine, and then we also feel like we're connected, and we're in the know, and we're seeing things, and we know what's happening. But what do the studies say over the last 10 years? This type of life, when you're engaging all the time and there's no boundary of should I do this now or, or should I not be doing this now, actually leaves people, they feel more connected, but in reality, they're more alone, insecure, and isolated than they've ever been. So much so that many people don't know how to interact with real humans anymore because they're only used to doing it through a screen. So they're like, dude, do you know how to be a normal person anymore? No, I'm on Facebook all the time. See, we thought... That this thing in this interaction would add to our humanity. And what we found is it's actually diminished it. We thought that this engagement would help us, but this over-engagement actually empties us out. Then we think of our Sabbath. Our weeks were set up to be 
six days of work, and then one day you lay aside your work and you rest and you worship. Six days to build your kingdom, to do your thing, to advance your purposes, and one day where you stop and rest in the kingdom of God and you worship the God who is over and above all things. You worship him, you relax, your soul is able to calm down. Maybe you end up dealing with some, some fellowship and have a good meal with other, other people, but you're, you're stopping all of the madness of your pursuits to rest and worship the God of all. While some of the world has flat out just kind of rejected this in, in order to maybe elevate hashtag Sunday fun day, I see countless believers who are kind of casting aside as well. What does it look like? A, a believer maybe at one point was, was really steadily fighting to have that one day where they slow down and worship, but slowly but surely one event and then another event and, and then maybe a kid's sport and, and, and then a job and then a fun thing and then another thing, and then a sickness, all of a sudden just keeps chipping away at their, their worship. And their Sabbathing and their resting in the Lord greatly decreases over time. And, and what's the, the net result of this chipping away of the Sabbath? Well, I can tell you it's never actual peace. See, days off from Sabbathing, when a person's like, this is going to be fun, and this will be restful, and this will be enjoyful, like, this will be good. It never actually gives you that. In a level, when I've seen people chip away too far, what you generally see is a level of anxiety and weariness and frustration in life. And then a cold heart, when they do come back in to worship the God of all things, they have a hard time doing it because their heart is, is hard and they, and they wonder why things are, are difficult. This simmering under the surface of frustration because we're, we're, we're kicking against the rhythms that God says, hey, I've done this to actually to help you. There's countless other examples of maybe diminishing the rhythms or times of the seasons. So we've done a lot of work to talk about time and seasons already because the preacher wants to talk about it. Right? The, 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 the preacher in Ecclesiastes is leading us here. So what's the rough outline of the book? Way too fast, real quick. The humanity cannot find satisfaction, joy, purpose, or meaning in a way that stands the test of time on their own. This has been the message so far in the book. This goes into the meaning of life. You cannot forge the meaning of life or satisfaction in life on your own by doing whatever you want. So we find meaning in acknowledging the Lord as we live day by day. So the teacher of, uh, of this book, Solomon, he puts this theory to the test. It was in the text that we covered last week. He goes, hey, you know what? I told you that we can't find those things on our own. Uh, so I'm going to run an experiment. I'm going to try. I'm going to go after wisdom. I'm going to go after pleasure. I'm going to go after work and toil. I'm going to see if I can't carve out some satisfaction that means something for me. And the sad part of his experiment is it ended up being the equivalent of a face plant. The harder he tried to lean into wisdom and pleasure and, and pursuits and work, the more it seemed to steal joy and peace from his heart. The oddity of the man trying to go to these things to find something is he actually found himself further away from what he was looking for than before. And the message was clear. You cannot give your heart whatever it needs, no matter if it's knowledge or financial gain, or the things that you do, or the pleasure that you feel, you cannot give your heart enough of those to fix you. All of those things are like smoke, like, like vapor. They're, they're vanity. They're the havel of the, the text. They're going to disappear and slip through your fingers, he says. So he says, be careful with that. Daniel Aiken said, Solomon's purpose is to expose the foolishness of a life lived without God in order to push us to enjoy God and his gifts. 
Satisfaction in God and his gifts is the meaningful life. And if we could just drill that into our heart, satisfaction in God is not a barrier to life. It is the meaningful life. And he goes on to say the Spirit's ultimate point in inspiring Ecclesiastes is to teach us that everything is meaningless unless you have Jesus, God the Son. So now in chapter 3, the focus shifts from pursuits to fill our lives with to try and find meaning saying that, you know, that's going to fall short and frustrate us. It's going to be vanity and vapor. To now he's going to say, hey, the way that you relate to time and the seasons can also be smoke and vapor and vanity if you're not careful. His point will be clear. You can fight time and the seasons of life in such a way that it will not add to your life. It'll disregard the God-given rhythms, limits, and seasons, and it won't add to your life. It's really going to hurt you. Again, the teacher's trying to be kind, going, what you're looking for can't be found that way. Let, let me show you, right? There was this interesting section in the text from last week uh, that the preacher said, when I pursued laughter, when I pursued uh, amusement, what I ended up finding at the end of the road was actually a form of madness and insanity. What he was talking about is, is when I pursued uh, laughter and amusement and kind of the, the, the fun enjoyment of amusement, he goes, what I found is that people who do that often end up laughing at things that shouldn't be laughed at. All of a sudden, people begin to, when, when the fun experience and the laugh and the ha-ha is the goal of your life, it pushes people into this weird thing where they begin to laugh at what should be sad, rejected, mourned, or, or just absolutely hated. We begin to laugh at it. And he says, you know, seeing that, that we laugh at the things that shouldn't is actually a form of insanity and madness, right? When, when, when we laugh at the wrong things, right? Laughing is good, but when you laugh for the wrong reason, it pushes you into an insanity. Now he's angling in to time, to talk about the times and the seasons. And his point will be, we can do the right thing. That's maybe not sinful or wrong at the wrong time. And that too will be madness and insanity. Or we can ignore uh, when we shouldn't be doing something and do it anyway, and that is going to be a madness and insanity that's going to hurt you. Again, his points are going to be, be careful when you're doing some of the things that you do. Now, we see this in the opening text. The preacher tells us immediately that everything has a season and a time. Everything is this way. What does that mean? It means that there are appropriate times for all things, There are seasons for things to take place underneath the sun. And conversely, he's going to say, and there's seasons when things shouldn't take place. I think we can understand that. There's times you can, and there's times you shouldn't. We see in the text mentioned the word time 29 times in the 15 verses. In the bulk of it, what the preacher is going to do is he's going to put together opposite pairs. These are called mirisms in order to make a point in the text. And he opens up with with the mirisms of when you're born and when you die. Now, this isn't inconsequential or random that the author puts your birth and your death first. On repeat, Ecclesiastes has talked about our life. It's talked about the time between you're born and when you die and how that time is quick. It's like a vapor. It's there and then then it's gone. And he even goes further over and over. He'll talk about it's not just your life. Generations will come and they'll go quickly because time is this cruel thing that pushes and it will not stop for anyone. It's fast and it'll slip away. Now, there's another point just besides brevity of life here that he's trying to teach that we have to understand. 
what he's going to say is beyond the consistent reminder of life's shortness, the preacher is also going to talk to us about times and seasons. And he starts this lesson by pointing to two specific times and seasons, birth and death. What is his point going to be? You have zero control over those. The opening of this is we have to open our hand and understand that you do not have nearly as much power in your life or the seasons coming your way as you thought, right? In birth, you had zero say of when you were born, right? You're like, hey, mom, dad, can I? No. You had no say into anything. You had no opinion in the matter at all. Even your parents probably didn't have as much say as they thought they wanted to have into when you were born. And whether we admit it or not, we don't have very much control over when we, when we die, He opens into it going, hey, I need you to understand this. The lesson starts out with, there are times and seasons for all things. Those times and seasons dictate some of the things that we should be or maybe shouldn't be doing. And no matter how much we want to be, we're not in charge of those times and seasons that come at us, at least not in charge of a lot of them. This is not a fond notion to men and women, is it? Wrapped inside of it is the concept of control of sovereignty, the author just said that there are ways that we're meant to live that are outside of our control. There there are desires that we have that do not filter into the season that we're in. There are wants that we have that do not filter into the season that we're in. There is a pattern of life that we don't have as much control over as we think we do. What's he trying to show us? You're called not to change the time or the seasons, We are called instead to acknowledge the proper time or season that you're in and live inside of it. That's a different thing. And and what is he trying to show in the reality of this text? God brings the time and season. So wisdom and trust and faith in many ways is living inside of the season that he's brought you into. This teaching from the preacher about time, it crashes dead smack into our lust for autonomy, doesn't it? We want what we want when we want it. And any limitation on that is considered by the world like a limitation or a violence on our freedom or our prosperity. We have baked into our social language the gospel of self-rule. That we get to decide not only who we are, what we are, what is right, but we most certainly get to dictate what we do and when we want to do it. I hear the resistance even in my own heart, like just talking through some of this when it comes about. I think maybe you do as well. You mean there are times that I cannot do the things that I want? That inner rebellion just jumps up and goes, who says? And who do you think you are for saying? And then who's going to stop me, right? Well, the author says, well, God says. God brings the seasons. Who does he think he is? Well, look to answer one. He's God. But here's the interesting part. Who's going to stop me? He most likely won't stop you. That's the interesting part of this. There's a way and a rhythm and a wisdom. You have to decide if you're going to live inside of it, though. Look at the times and seasons. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. The point the preacher is is making is God has assigned these times and seasons and whether we decide to live inside them or or fight them and go with them is a big decision that we have to kind of make. Why? Why do we need to live inside the scope of the times and seasons that the Lord is bringing? Especially if the the Lord isn't going to force you, if you're not handcuffed, like 
What's the motivation? Why can't we just march to the beat of our own drum? Grace is good. God is kind. You do you. I'll do me. Why can't we do that? Well, Let's look at an example of, of harvesting. A lot of these uh, mirisms or these pears have to do with a little bit of agriculture in them. So, so maybe let's take that and let's reverse engineer a rejection of the seasons. If in December a man says, you know what? I want to plant some sweet corn. I'm going to do it. Thought about it. I'm going to do it. I don't care what season it is. I'm going to go into the field and I'm going to make it happen because it's what I want to do. He goes out vigorously clears the dormant vegetation because nothing's growing in December, tills the soil extra well, removes the rocks and maybe some of the roots underneath. He oh so carefully drills the holes and puts the seed inside and he covers it up and he gives the corn just the, the perfect amount of water in December for all the time and effort and money that the man spent planting that corn that he oh so badly wanted. What's the return on the investment? Right, that's been the language a ton that the preachers used. What's the return on your toil underneath the sun? Well, his toil for corn will result in nothing. No kernels, no harvest, no gain, no no, no, uh, celebration. Just a fool who did a whole lot of work for absolutely no reason. What was his harvest? The harvest of frustration, unmet desire, and unmet expectations. Yeah, he did what he wanted, disregarding the season. He sure didn't get anything good out of it. Now, I realize this is an example of hyperbole, but it serves to make a point for us. God does not stand over us like the seasonal police, making sure that we're recognizing his seasons and forcing us to comply. You can live outside the seasons if you want. God won't stop you again. If you do, trying to come at this nicely instead of heavy-handed, it just makes you what the Bible calls a fool, though. What is a fool biblically? Because the Bible also says be careful about how much you throw around that word. A fool is a person who ignores wisdom, or they don't have the discipline to live inside wisdom. Maybe they see it, they're just not disciplined enough to live inside of it. A fool is one who prioritizes what they want over what is real, And a fool is also a person who wants to act like God when there is a God and it's not them. Zach Eswine says, time offers a repeated rhythms of beginnings and endings. Learning to receive rather than resist these rhythms, we can draw near to God and his purposes for our life and lot that he has given us. In short, we enter an already established routine that we did not choose, but that shapes how we live. Isn't that part of the definition of faith? I will trust you and live inside of what you've created. When I mentioned technology and the expectation of right now and immediacy in the battle to exert our will over the top of the the seasons or the rhythms and how technology has given us a level of prosperity, opened up kind of unlimited choice to us, that means that the seasons that used to limit people more don't limit us here as much. Right? They're way less of a governing factor, governing factor for us than they were in biblical times. What do I mean by that? Well, okay, in the Old Testament, you couldn't over-engage in social media 24-7. Why? There, right? There, there is none. You, you can't do it. What else? You couldn't have a rough Saturday where you're a little bit sad, and so you go to the computer and buy $500 worth of clothing or electronics to make yourself feel better. You can't stay up too late and drink too much and all of a sudden go bid on things on 
on eBay because you should have been sleeping, but instead you're... You couldn't ignore your family and open up a device and begin to look for pleasure at items that you should be staying away from. You can't drive away from your spouse after a fight that you should be making up with her over. What am I getting at? The time and seasons were meant to be defenses. And they used to kind of control and influence things to to a higher level than they do now. This is what I couldn't get over this week. What now seems to be governing most people's lives? What is the map, the parameter, the grid? It's our impulses. That is an extremely scary thought. Our lives get guided by our impulse control or our lack thereof. I don't know that there's a person in the room that this doesn't hit you deep in the soul. And the preacher is just calling us back into lives that are guarded by times and seasons instead of the God of our belly or the God of our eyes or the God of our desires. The preacher shows us that God has made everything beautiful in its own time which means God hasn't just made a time for everything under the sun. He's made each thing, even the stuff like our weeping, beautiful in its own time or can bring something beautiful out of it. This one seems hard to swallow though, doesn't it? I read that list. You tell me war and hate and casting stones and loss are beautiful? I, I don't know. That tension is enough that a lot of commentators have tried to to skirt it. As I read, I I was kind of shocked how many people did not want to deal with that head on. So would they actually reframe the the text to say, no, no, there's an appropriate time for all things because they did not want to say that God brought beauty out out of things that we would say are terrible. They wanted to diffuse the tension of the wise preacher saying that he can bring beautiful out of the terrible things that hit us. But when you do that, you empty this text out of part of its beauty. See, those commentators are right. I don't think the psalmist is necessarily calling war beautiful. There's no one who who looks over the old battlefield and sees blood is like, oh, breathtaking. I I don't think that's what he's doing, but the nuance is a little different than that. The preacher is saying there's a beauty in the seasons and times. And the original wording is an adorning, like a a putting on of beauty. What's he getting at? God is not flippant or callous and he definitely isn't a fool. God is doing something in every season under the sun that we find ourselves and he can bring beautiful hope and peace even in our suffering. It's not that every bad thing is beautiful and you just gotta be held down and say, oh, it's great, I love it, give me another. It's God can make you beautiful through you trusting him in the horrific things that hit you. He's doing something through the pain. How do you trust in the Lord unless you wrap your mind around that? He makes beautiful those who trust him, even when they're suffering. There is no time, there is no season, there is no event that God isn't working through or can't work through. There's a part of verse 11 along with the beauty, it's interesting. He says, God has put eternity on our hearts. This gets proof texted and destroyed all the time. The preacher says, God has done that. He's put eternity on our hearts. There's actually kind of a sad or heavy text though. 
Because then as you read on, he's put eternity on our hearts, but he's hidden the why. We know that there's a God. We know that there's more to life than meets the eye. We know that there's time that pushes on like a cruel slave master and won't stop no matter how much we ask it to. We see the reality of the seasons in front of us that we can't control. We see the hand of God in some ways, but we don't know exactly what he's up to or why he's doing it, which brings us to an intersection. Will you trust him or will you hate him? Will you call him a good father or a cruel monster when he brings things into your lap that you do not want? What's the preacher digging at in our hearts with this section? Well, I think at some times, the first, I think at some points we ignore the seasons out of a lack of impulse control. You just do it because you do what you want and no one's going to stop you. We think that the world is all we get, so we live like functional atheists who do not have a promise over their lives. But sometimes I don't think that's it at all. Sometimes we ignore the season at hand because we can't reconcile in our hearts how a loving God would allow us to walk through that terrible thing that we never wanted to be a part of. Some of the pain and the suffering and the brokenness and the anguish that we faced, it feels easier to ignore God's hand rather than acknowledge he let that happen. Rather than trust that he is good and adorning us with trust that has an eternal hope in the things that we don't want to be in a part of. See, it's only when you remember the eternal promise that you can believe he's good in hard things because the eternal promises points to when he'll wipe all the tears away in Revelation, how he's still good and eternally, even some of the hard stuff now, it, it'll be undone. He speaks into this tension after name. We don't know the why of all things. So in verse 12, he says, maybe we should stop trying to figure that part of it out all the time. This point, we lay down so much joy and good in our lives because we're too distracted trying to figure out why God, why God does what he does. If I were to like time out and step aside, I've seen some of the most horrific things done when people try to speak prophetically into why God's doing a certain thing. I've literally seen people who have miscarried and their parents have told them, well, God's trying to teach you this. You're like, no, don't do that. You are not the sovereign one. There's a lot of pain and frustration when you can begin to try and diagnose, especially in the middle of the moment, why God would do something. I find his hand to be kind, and a lot of times he shows us in years later, be careful at pointing out the why when you, when you probably don't know the why. Why did that war come? Why did I have to mourn? Why did they hurt me? These, these are tensions we feel. Why did that relationship break? Why, why, why did they do that? Some, some of the hard things that we've talked about when we've been together as a church for many years is there's people that when you were there when their kids were born and you were there when they're married and at these live big, big marks of life and, and, and now all of that's gone and our heart's going, why? This is why it's important to trust that he knows what he's doing instead of trying to identify why he did what he did. Why? It will shipwreck you. There's a level of trust that understands that he can bring beauty in even our deepest pain. He has promised a day when there also will be no more pain. 
I don't know that that gets you to a point. Like I've seen some of the most horrific things that have happened to, to me and Allie. Later, I can see God did something good. But I don't know, like, sign me up again. Let's do it again. But walking through it in a level of trust is what we're called to do. Then Ecclesiastes goes back to make sure that things are balanced out and healthy again. And I, I kind of love that he's doing this at the tail part of a lot of the text. He says, everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in what they do. You're like, wait, I thought he said that that was all vanity. He says, do this because it's a gift from God. God isn't a pleasure thief. He's a good father, a good gift giver all who trust and follow his son. The point was never have no fun. Well, your life has to be awful for, for an eternal payoff. The point was don't let the pursuits of, of fun and pleasure and eating and, and drinking enslave you and don't let them cause you to ignore the seasons because you're gonna head out after, after those things no matter what time you're in. There's a writing. It goes like this, time why you punish me. Like a, wave, like a wave bashing into the shore, you wash away my dreams. Time why you walk away. Like a friend with somewhere to go, you left me crying. Can you teach me about tomorrow and all the pain and sorrow running free? Anybody know that great theological group? Hootie and the Blowfish. It's Darius Rucker. They got more right than maybe we would expect. Time is cruel. It's not just a wisdom of the seasons of time. It's also a proper acknowledgement of time. Time pushes with a force that you cannot stop. It moves along in a way that will never slow down even when you need it to, like a runaway train that you cannot get its pace to slow down. It will keep moving. Again, that's his point. A generation comes and a generation goes. Time out, time out. No, no, no. A generation comes and a generation goes. Even in moments that we feel extreme pain and exasperated, and you're like, please just stop so I can catch my breath. It's not gonna stop. It just keeps moving. And the reality of time beyond the cruelty of the way that it won't stop is, is there's always a perplexing matter to you. When you're young, time can't go fast enough. When you're old, it can't go slow enough. It's, it's always this battle with time. And the duality of time, sometimes it offers you profound joy and laughter, and dancing, and gratitude, and celebration. And then, like, the next day, 24 hours later, it drops uncontrollable weeping, and death, and sickness, and war in your lap. The authors, I, I think, speaking to us, this is like vanity, isn't it? The good seasons, they slip out. The bad seasons, they slip out. Life is short. We can't even control the moments that hit in the middle of our life. What's the preacher drawing us to? It's really a simple question, will you trust God? I want to overplay or overextend what he's asking. Will you yield to the season of life that you're in? Will the times that you're meant to face, or will you reject them while you kick against the goads and believe that you're doing something? I can't help but think of Genesis 3 here. Right, taking us back to the garden and the tree and the apple and the fall. If we refuse to live inside the time or the seasons that God has brought about, if we refuse to live inside of them, we're like Adam and Eve accusing God of not being good to us. 
accusing him of, of not having our best interest at mind. I could do better, or maybe you're a fool, or maybe you're cruel, or if I was sovereign, things would be better than if you, so I, I'm going to do this. And because of the accusation, we, we take a bite of the apple in our own way as we take the reins of sovereignty from the Lord over our lives and go, I'm going to do what I want again because I think I'll do better. This is the exact tension that was in the garden that day. It's just a fundamental belief that God isn't really good or trustworthy. And what is the response to that? It's rejecting his ways. The wise preacher warns us, don't do that. Learn to enjoy the good seasons. And this is why it's actually a deeply important thing you have to learn to celebrate. Enjoy the good. Trust in the good. And then accept the stuff you don't want. Trust him even in the moments that hurt. And trust that the time and the seasons aren't always hindrances to you. Sometimes they're defenses to help you out. Sometimes they're the seatbelt that helps you not go flying out of the window. To make sure we're not getting too ethereal, I'll try and reel this down to our lives. I've told Garrett before and, and Jeff and John, like it, I don't want to overextend application, but I do want to make sure we understand maybe where this hits at some points. What is rejecting the time or seasons? What does it look like in our lives? First and foremost, it's a rejection of limitations as the, the high-hanging fruit or the low-hanging fruit for us. It's a limitation of, of rejections and rest and the art of contempla- or contemplation. I couldn't say that. It's a rejection of the, the, the Sabbath and over-prioritization of your kingdom while you ignore the God who is the Alpha and Omega, the Holy and Hallowed One. So I will not slow down. I will not slow down. And we think he's cruel for making us slow down when he goes, hey, come and find rest. You don't got to work so hard. But then it, there can be a rejection in specific moments or specific seasons that hit our life. How often do we see a life that doesn't want to leave the season of laughter or celebration or fun? Right? The, the person who, who never wants to stop like harvesting. Everything's just get. Everything's fun. Everything's just good it, it, that, that I want to do. How often do we see that life that won't ever stop the celebration and the fun and then enjoying themselves and they refuse to, to plant or work or maybe even calamity hits them and they won't stop to suffer and weep? They want all mountaintop experiences. You will not slow me down. And they do not acknowledge when another season has come and it begins to kill them from the inside. It rips the fabric of what it means to be a human because you have to slow down in some moments and, and weep and heal. And, and sometimes everything's not fun. You gotta work and you gotta not be a child anymore. And you, gotta, you, you have to switch seasons. How often do we see the life that needs to heal and be silent, but they refuse, right? They're all gas. And they never find peace and they never find health. They don't see that the Lord wants to bind their wounds so that they can be sent back out and their life's not over. The Lord's trying to heal them, but they won't slow down to get it. But conversely, I see the opposite quite a bit right now. Then I see the person who's been healing for years too long. They've been stuck in a season and they will not walk out of it. They will not acknowledge that God is a good, a gift-giving God who will heal their heart. So they just get stuck in this proverbial sadness and bitterness when God goes, hey, the door's been open the whole time. Get up, walk out, I have more for you. But they won't acknowledge the season. 
right? From my own heart, I, I don't know about you, at different times when your family hits certain points and, and you have kids and you're used to freedom and autonomy and going and all of a sudden you're like, I can't go, I gotta stay and I like to go hang out with the boys, I gotta change diapers. Like there's this tension, what is that? You have a new season, you gotta slow down for a while. With that, I'd say that this sermon isn't really one that allows a one-size-fits-all application to it. So what do we take away? How do we wrestle with this text properly? I think it's by asking the Lord to help us at the front side. There's a side of maturity and growth. I think it comes hand in hand with sanctification where you ask the Lord, please help me not live out of the realm of only what I want to do. Help me have eyes to see the season that I'm actually in right now. And then help me to live well out of that season that you have placed me in. For the hope for us as a church, man, I want it to be said, not only well done, good and faithful servant, I want us to hear, man, you lived well in the suffering and the celebration. You just, you're steady in me. I want to be those who, who sowed at the appropriate time and, and sweat of our brow and worked and dug. And then I want to be those that harvest and find joy and celebrate at the proper times as well. The phrase that kept coming into my mind when studying this text is, Lord, give us the wisdom to see what season we're in and give us the the boldness or faith to actually live out of it, even if we wouldn't have chose it. Help us trust you and cling to you when times are good. Because here's the thing. I, I don't know about you, but if you notice some of the proclivities of your heart, when things are good, you're like, I don't need you. No Sabbath. Don't need rest. Having fun, right? And then when it's bad, you're like, anger. Ah, like, Lord, Help me not run away and think I'm stronger than I am in the good season. And so would you let me just thank you and worship you that you're good? And help me trust you when things aren't going well. Let me have gratitude and joy that your gifts are all good even when I can't see why. That you're not an angry God that is just lashing out against me in anger. Help me trust you. Even when I don't really know what you're doing. I think there is the ability to even say, look, man, I... I don't like this. Help me trust you. We're going to play a song, Give Me Faith. Right? There's times where you're going to need to sing that to your own heart. Give me faith because right now I don't want to believe I'm angry and I'm upset and I'm, I'm hurt. Help me cling to you. The beautiful reality that we get to cling to in these seasons of suffering, the moments that we don't like, is that we have a promise given to us. The timeless, omnipotent God the Son stepped into the cycle of time that we're in. Do you, do you get that? He was outside of all of it. And what does he do to rescue us? He steps in, into the cycles of frustration, into the, to the weeping, inside of the pain to make a way to eternally redeem you and end that for you. That is a great and good news. God stepped into time to free you from the cycles and the, cycles and the brokenness of time. Think eternally. There will be a day when you're not trying to slow down time anymore. There'll be a day when you're not like, I don't know why you did this to me anymore. Christ stepped into eternity to make that happen. The hard work then is to believe that he is good even when we can't hardly see through the tears in our eyes and hold on knowing that he's made an eternal promise to us. We can't get around it. This book is a bold call to live for eternity knowing that God has made a promise to make all things new one day. God has made a way to redeem us from our sin and our brokenness and God will one day wipe away the tears that you cry. The fullness of the inheritance that you have been given is going to be greater than you can ever imagine. 
Right? Our hearts, we can marinate on that and think about that. And that's even a gift of the Sabbath. You can slow down and think about the mercies and the promises that God has given you, knowing full well you're going to get there and go, this is way better, way better than what I thought. The, the word that, the line that I've kept saying over the first three weeks of this series is our faith is either everything or it's nothing, friends. Our time and how we navigate our time is a prime way to see what our faith is. What is our faith like? Will I trust the Lord even when it's not what I want? Would I treat the Lord like a genie and I will follow you as long as you give me what you want, but if you don't, I'm taking those reins from you. What is our faith like? Will we cling to the one who has made a way? We worship him even in the moments that are hard. This is what the preacher is asking and this is what our hope is in to do. Man, you guys can come back up. We're gonna take communion in the middle of worship today. The full remembrance around today is there's this nugget around time and wisdom dropped on us with a promise that Jesus has given us that hits dead smack in the middle of it. So what do we do? We're gonna wrestle with the time and the seasons, asking the Lord, what time am I in? What season am I in? But also reminding us the only way that there is a good news is because Jesus has come. His body was broken and his blood was shed to redeem you. That is the sign of the promise of what we have eternally and his resurrection shows that it's not It's not fiction. 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends in the middle of trying to live well and live lives of faith and trust the the Lord even in the hard stuff, we get to come to the table and have it build us up. This is the beauty of why we put this as a, a central part of the service every week. We're saying, Lord, let me see what you've done. Let me see how that filters into my life. Let me see how that filters into my face. So you don't have to be a member here, but in the middle of worship, when the time is appropriate for you, I'd hope that you would kind of wrestle with the text and the Lord ahead of time, that you come up in gratitude and thankfulness and remember, man, there's a sacrifice for you and that means something to you eternally. If you're in a horrific season, it means that there's a promise about that. If you're in a great season, there's still a promise for you. Would we wrestle with that appropriately and be those who are wise about the times that the Lord has put over us? Would you stand and would you pray with me?